Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Hey, if you're here with us and you're in the six to eight year old group and you've signed up and registered for class, you can go ahead and be dismissed. Your class, your teachers are already ready for you there. Um, if you're not in the six to eight year old classroom, I have a question for you. Right? And our question that we're kind of looking at this morning is, what does it mean for God to be with us? In what sense is God with us this morning? In what sense is, is Jesus with us this morning? Obviously, we can't look around the room and kind of point to the seat where Jesus is sitting. In what sense is He with us? And what sense does He go with us as we go? Is God with us? in the sense that we are blessed. We find God's presence amongst those who are blessed. In fact, there are a number of kind of theological traditions that would say that this is the case, that God's presence is with someone as their their house is expanded, as their finances are blessed, as their jobs and their, um, uh, their recreation are blessed in all these different ways. And that's the way we see that God is with us. Or we might also say that he's physically with us, that he's physically present. And in that sense, he's um, you know, omnipresent, so he is everywhere. Well, what way is he specifically with us? Is it primarily about protection? Maybe you've heard the, the stories and the examples of someone who was on the highway and there was a car accident and they felt God's presence with them. How do we understand God to be present with his people in a specific way? We ask that question because it's on the face of our text in Genesis chapter 39, and we'll see this as we dig into the passage. But as we kind of head into Genesis 39, the story of Joseph's faithfulness with with Potiphar's wife, uh, we we see this. God is still present with his people. Even though he was present with Joseph, as the text will kind of outline, outline uh, we'll see that he's also present with us in a unique way. Now, as we go through our passage, we're going to see it in three different phases. In verses 1 through 6, we'll see that Joseph thrives in Potiphar's house. And then in, in verses 6 through 18, we'll see that Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph. And then in verses 19 through 23, that Potiphar puts Joseph in prison. Let me pray this morning that God just uses our time together and we'll just kind of dive into the Word. Pray with me. Lord, we ask now that you would use your Word for your honor and glory. Lord, allow it to make sense to us, to our ears. Uh, Allow it to shape and form our hearts that we would be made new as we hear your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start off in verses 1 through 6. Joseph thrives in Potiphar's house. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended to him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. 
From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about, any, about the, anything but the food he ate. See, what happens is that Joseph thrives in Potiphar's, Potiphar's house. See, verse 1 describes that Joseph is brought to Potiphar's house, right? Joseph goes down to Egypt. Now, this is the third time in three chapters that we've seen this word down used. We've seen it used when Jacob decided that he was going to go down to Sheol to see Joseph because he thinks he's dead. We saw it last week in chapter 38 when Judah went down to Adullam to meet his friend Hira and then eventually found his wife. Uh, specifically, he ends up in Potiphar's house. And we really don't know much about Potiphar. We know that he's an Egyptian, right? Meaning he's from Egypt, right? That was deep. I know. That's deep insight right there, right? We're told that he's the captain of the guard, which uh, simply means he's just a pretty powerful guy. And Joseph kind of lands in the right spot there. He lands with this really powerful guy and, and Verse 2 records for us that the Lord was with Joseph in his work. In fact, that's what verse 2 highlights. It says that the Lord is present with Joseph. Now, this might be surprising to like an Israelite reader of this passage because we might be surprised that, that God would be in Egypt. Remember in this whole book of Genesis, Jacob was surprised to find God at Bethel. And then he was surprised later on when he was about to meet his brother Laban that uh, two angels were found in the camp. So he named it two camps. So now we might be surprised that, that God is down in Egypt with Joseph. And surely this highlights kind of God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere. God was not tied to specific locations. It would be particularly applicable for a people who were wandering the desert for some 40 years that would be reading uh, this book of Genesis and, and the law. So what we see from there in verses 3 through 6 is that Potiphar sees God's presence with Joseph. So Joseph is brought into Potiphar's house. Joseph is given the presence of God, and Potiphar is recognizing uh, his faithfulness, God's faithfulness to Joseph. There's something that, that defines chapter 39 that we talked about here uh, where we see this kind of description of God was with Joseph. And so this uh, kind of progression happens that we see not only here in verses 1 through 6, but also in verses 21 through 23, that God is with Joseph, that God blesses Joseph's work, that Joseph gains favor in the sight of his overseer, and that his overseer thrives with Joseph under his care. Specifically, this is how this looks in these, these verses here. Verse 3 says that Potiphar sees. Potiphar takes note of Joseph's successes that have been described in verse 2, and he hands everything over to Joseph in time, right? Everything Joseph does is prospering, kind of like Psalm 1 would describe, in whatever he does, he prospers. And so Potiphar gives his favor in verse 4. Now look at how this is expanding, right? First, Joseph attends just to Potiphar. He's kind of Potiphar's right-hand man, right? He's following Potiphar around, attending to all of Potiphar's needs, uh, then he was made overseer of Potiphar's house, and so he's attending to the entirety of the house. And then he's given, uh, kind of uh, entrusted everything that is Potiphar's by the end of verse 4. 
And so what, what's described in verses 5 and 6 is the blessing that Potiphar receives because of Joseph's presence in his house. In fact, verse 5 tells us that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So God's presence with Joseph brings blessing to Potiphar's house. See, we, we see this and we recognize that God has always desired to have presence with his people God has always desired to be with his people in a specific way. If we just take a brief glance, we see a God who doesn't desire to remain aloof or disconnected from his people. He wants to be with his people. We see this from the earliest points of Genesis where where God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden as Genesis 3 describes. That God was with Isaac in Genesis 26. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not for I am with you. God was with Jacob in Genesis 37. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. God was with his people when the cloud of, uh, in the pillar of cloud, in the pillar of fire, in the, as recorded in the book of Exodus. God's presence was with Israel as, they, uh, as it was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. God was with his people. And, and we should kind of find this astonishing, right? God doesn't really need to be with his people. We have to think about this uh, through a biblical lens and through a theological lens and say, God isn't a God of need. I was talking with someone earlier uh, a couple weeks ago, and they were describing this TV show called Alone. Uh, and in this TV show, it's a number of people who are just kind of burn out with life. And what they do is they take them and they spread them out on an island. And about every five miles, they go down the shoreline and they plant a person there alone uh, to kind of forge their way in the wilderness. And so, you know, this person is describing this TV show to me, and, that they, and they're saying that these people are just, they're experiencing divorce or uh, burnout from work or whatever, and they're being planted on an island. And then one by one, almost like systematically, they're, they're kind of giving up their camp, and they're giving up on the show, and they're saying the same thing. We're not meant to be alone. Reminds us of, of Genesis chapter 2, right? Where, where God says it's not good for man to be alone. You and I were not meant to be alone. We were meant to be in community with one another. God made us this way. But when we talk about God, God is relational, but he's not in need like we are. God is not needy of relationship. In fact, theologians describe that God is a non-contingent being. He desires nothing or needs nothing outside of himself. In order that he might be fully God, he doesn't rely upon anything uh, that isn't him. However, he expressed his character and chose to create man and relate to them. He chose to make mankind the object of his massive favor. I love Michael Reeves write, writes a really good book called Delighting in the Trinity. And I want to put a quotation in front of you here from, from Michael Reeves. And he says this, But the Father is called Father because he is a father. That's, again, profound, right? A father is a person who gives life, who begets, chil- who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been giving life. See, the nature of God is to be outgoing, is to be self-giving. And so God is one who's not contingent. 
God is not needy for relationship like we are, but chooses to be self-giving, chooses to be present with his people. If God is with anyone, it is an extension of his gracious self-giving. But God's presence is about to be tested. God's presence is about to be kind of uh, tested by a, a temptation that's coming here. Remember, Joseph's brothers have disqualified themselves from being the heir of promise. But what will Joseph do with God's presence aiding him and helping him? What will Joseph do in the face of temptation that's coming in verses 6 through 18? Well, let's look there. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. See, Potiphar's wife pursues a sexual relationship with Joseph. Starts off, Joseph was a good-looking guy, right? Verse 6 tells us that he was handsome in form and appearance. And I know that's the way you think of me most often but it's also applying to Joseph. In fact, the same language has been describing Rachel uh, back in Genesis chapter 29. It will later be used to describe David. David was a handsome individual. It's kind of awkward for us dudes when we're reading these passages and they're describing these handsome guys, right? Anyway, but he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. In fact, Potiphar makes some very kind of sexual advances to Joseph. Verse 7, she comes to him and she says, lie with me. Verse 10, it tells us that that these advances were ongoing time and time again, day in, day out. She is making advances toward Joseph. Now notice Joseph's response in verses 8 and 9. First, in verse 8 and in early verse 9, he describes that he uh, could not do such a thing because Potiphar has given trust to him. Look at verse 8. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Joseph is recognizing, saying, this is the only thing that has been withheld from me. You are the only thing that has been withheld from me. Even Potiphar is not greater in this house than I am. You have given, he has given me absolute reign over his property. How could I do this thing? But the second thing that he says in verse 9 is he brings it into a spiritual sphere. How then could I do this great wickedness and what? And sin against God. See, the more important emphasis that Joseph puts here is actually shorter in wording. Where were these statements, where were these sentiments from Judah last week in Genesis 38? Or where was this sentiment of this Godward righteousness in the mouth of Jacob back in chapter 34? In fact, we almost sense that Joseph seems to be unique in his family because he recognizes that his sin isn't just horizontal against other people. Joseph recognizes uniquely that his sin is against a righteous and holy God, that he can't do this thing with Potiphar's wife because it would be a sin against God the Father. 
But this faithfulness from Joseph will go unrewarded as we look at verses 11 through 18. Look there with me. One day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, She has brought among us, or he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out, cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard it, uh, that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the very same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Joseph leaves his garment. Joseph has some clothing problems here in the book of Genesis, doesn't he? It was just a few chapters ago in chapter 37 that his brothers became jealous of his, of his robe of many colors. And that jealousy kind of spurned them that when they finally found him alone in the wilderness, they stripped off his robe. They threw him in a pit and eventually sold him as a slave to these Egyptians. It's here that, that Joseph strips off his robe or is, has his robe stripped off as he's fleeing this temptation from Potiphar's wife. And he's being accused because of that garment uh, being accused of, of unrighteousness. But every time Joseph is stripped of his clothes, it highlights Joseph's innocence. If we remember back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what does God create? He kills an animal, and he creates, what? A garment to cover them. And it's a, a recognition that Joseph is, every time he's stripped of his clothing, he's innocent, that he's being falsely accused or misunderstood by his brothers. Here, Potiphar's wife uses this garment uh, to get back at Joseph. Uh, This woman is a master manipulator. Notice that she creates a narrative from one piece of evidence. She, She takes this garment and she creates a whole story around this particular garment. And we have to recognize that Potiphar is inclined to trust Joseph. So she has to create a narrative that actually undermines that trust. And the first thing that she does is she grabs this, uh, this, this garment and she creates this story that we see. Second, the thing that she does is that she pressures Potiphar with her accusations. Look at the statements that she makes in verses 14 and 17 and 19. And in fact, it's on the slide here. Potiphar's wife's accusations in verse 14. See, he, that's Potiphar, has brought among us a Hebrew. And in verse 17, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us. And then again in verse 19, this is the way your servant treated me. See, Potiphar's wife is putting pressure on Potiphar to say, you're the one who's introducing this unsafety in our household. You are leaving me compromised and open. You see how she's twisting the story here. See, the story she tells is one of Potiphar's failure to protect her and his household. See, as we reflect on this, we see the faithfulness of Joseph, right? Right? Joseph, who day after day is pressured, day after day is tempted, but remains faithful amidst this temptation. It reminds us that God's presence helps us amidst our temptation. 
God desires to be present with his people, but he also uses his presence to help us amidst our temptation. Joseph is faithful here. And not only is this Joseph not given to temptation, he credits God as the reason for his purity, as we saw in verse 9. Have you noticed this, that Genesis is a very sexualized book? There's a lot of kind of crazy, weird stories. In fact, there are really kind of a few different sins that rise to the surface as we talk about the book of Genesis. We've seen uh, kind of an issue with debauchery. We saw that in Noah. Uh, we've seen that elsewhere. Uh, but here we see also, uh, you know, we see uh, murder and violence that creeps up, whether that's Cain and Abel or the Nephilim, who are probably pretty violent people, or Levi and Simeon. Uh, lots of killing and murder happening but there's a lot of illicit sex. We saw Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed because of sexual sin. We see something happening between Noah and his son Ham in Genesis 9 that is sexual in its nature. Abraham sleeps with his servant Hagar in, in uh, Genesis 16. And, and just last week in Genesis 38, we saw Judah and Tamar. And we remember that Genesis is, is really uh, an issue of uh, a story of genealogy. So you're going to hear stories about who's having babies with who and who's having sex with who. But we recognize that Joseph is in a very sexualized culture, in a very sexualized book. Reminds us that our modern American culture has a warped view of sex too, doesn't it? I mean, just stop and think about this for a second. If you're over uh, 30 years old, you might remember a time where where we would publicly talk about uh, marital relations in a way where we would describe it as making love. We would talk about making love. Now we use the phrase have sex. And I just want to highlight the difference between these two things. To make love describes something collaborative. It hinges upon a value, namely love. But when we talk about having sex, it's, it's actually, um, it emphasizes kind of the wrong thing. It individualizes sexuality. It makes sexual expression a possessive thing. I have this. See, our culture describes sex as something we need. It's not just something we desire or want. We we describe sexual uh, temptation or sexual uh, expression as something we actually need. And I'm here just to logically say this morning, I don't, I'm not aware of anyone who has ever died of a lack of sexual expression. It's never happened. See, this morning as we look at this story, we, we might take encouragement from Joseph that the presence of God helps us navigate sexual temptation. We might be tempted to look at this passage and say the opposite, that Joseph kind of keeps the presence of God because he's faithful in the midst of temptation, that God sticks around with Joseph because Joseph navigates the temptation faithfully. But we also remember that when Abraham sinned with Hagar, God stuck around. That God would later describe David as a man after his own heart, knowing that he would sin with Bathsheba and with other women. No, we should see that Joseph is faithful to God because God was present with him. See, this false accusation kind of finds its result in verses 19 through 23. Let's look at 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant has treated me. His anger was kindled. 
And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. See, Potiphar imprisons Joseph, right? Potiphar's angry in verse 9. We don't really get a sense of why. We can assume that it's because he thinks Joseph has transgressed something, but it might also be that he's angry with his wife. He sees that his wife is manipulating the situation. We don't really know, but regardless, he throws Joseph into prison. It's the only natural outcome. It's the only possible outcome as Potiphar has made, or Potiphar's wife has made her case. See, here's what's interesting, is in this passage, uh, the word house or household is used some 13 times in chapter 39. If you go back and read through chapter 39, you're going to just hear house, 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 up until you get to these verses, and then you're going to hear the word prison, 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 right? It's just emphasizing that there has been a shift of location for Joseph. And it really emphasizes throughout the course of Genesis that, that Joseph has been stripped from his father's household and now finds himself in a dank prison in Egypt. See, Moses is trying to pitch something to us. Moses, as he writes this book, is trying to show us that Joseph was the preferred son in his father's house. But by his brother's jealousy, he became the preferred servant in Potiphar's house. But because of Potiphar's wife's accusations, he became the preferred prisoner in this Egyptian prison. You can see Joseph is continually more and more faithful, more and more righteous, more and more defined by God's presence, but more and more alienated, more and more suffering is coming to his life. Notice what happens in verses 21 through 23. See, the Lord is with Joseph amidst his imprisonment. Isn't that what he says in verses 21 and 23? Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything uh, that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Twice in these two verses, uh, Moses is emphasizing God's presence with Joseph. Even in prison, in Egypt, God is present with Joseph. Not only that, God continues to give him favor. He's executing his work perfectly. He's being blessed in his work so that the keeper of the prison, in verse 21, is just seeing that faithfulness and entrusting more and more to him. See, we step away from this story And we see this. We see it emphasized in the passage that God is with Joseph. God's with Joseph as a servant in Potiphar's house. He's with Joseph in this uh, forgotten prison in Egypt. He's with him wherever he goes because God isn't just this kind of fair-weather fan of Joseph. God is present with his people no matter where they are, what circumstance they find themselves with. See, this morning we recognize that God isn't just present with people like Joseph that God has made presence or made promise of his presence to us as well. Recognize that Jesus tells us that he would be with us in a unique way. Jesus is 
with us in the incarnation. In fact, there's a, a slide we're going to pull up that uh, describes how Jesus is with us. In Matthew chapter 1, uh, this prophecy, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then and Matthew adds this little phrase, and he says, Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus was a representation of God with us. And John 1.14 corroborates that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Matthew 28.20, 20, after Jesus' resurrection, as he's ascending into heaven, the very last words that he would speak to his people, in the book of Matthew, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, that Jesus is present with his people. To get even more specific, the Spirit is in us. It's good for us to ask obvious questions sometimes. We might say, How is Jesus with us today? How is Jesus with us in the church? In what sense, in what tangible way, does Jesus actually dwell amongst his people? And we might give like that classic like Sunday school answer, well, Jesus is in our hearts. What does that mean? It's not that it's completely wrong or incorrect. See, that statement is true. Jesus is in our hearts only because of a rich theological principle of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was about to be crucified, he promised the Holy Spirit to us in his absence. And in fact, he spends uh, two different chapters in John 14 and 15 and into John 16 describing how he would be present with us through his Spirit that he would send. Such that Paul speaks of the Spirit as in us. And I'll bring up those verses that the Spirit is inside of us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. It's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Romans chapter 8, you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul is saying it's not just Jesus who came to dwell among us, it's the spirit who through the resurrected Christ, the, 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 the victory over sin and death now, the spirit dwells inside of us. See, Jesus is present with us in the spirit who dwells in us. God has brought himself increasingly near to his people. Let's just think about this for a second. God showed himself to Abraham through theophany. He would appear time and time again. Genesis 18, he appears on the horizon. Moses, or Abraham makes him a meal and they eat together. Moses, he sees God in, on Mount Sinai. But they see God just in these glimpses, right? But when Jesus comes, Jesus comes and dwells among us. He is approachable. We can touch him. We can hear him. We can smell him. But now, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, God chooses to dwell in us. So God simply isn't still with us. God is more present to us than he has ever been in all of history as he indwells us in the Spirit. See, this morning, what we want to draw attention to is that God is with his people. But he could only be with his people, uniquely in the Spirit, as he was not with his Son at a particular moment. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said this in Matthew chapter 27 and Mark 15. He said, My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 4 about uh, this friend Demas who deserted him, he describes. It's this idea of actually being absent. If hell is separation from God, then Jesus bore our hell, experiencing the separation we deserved at the cross. In order for God to be with his people in the Spirit, he first had to forsake his own Son, in such a way that the, the unity of the Trinity wasn't broken, but in some way that he was real, really actually forsaken by God the Father, that, that God is in some sense turning his back on Jesus so that you and I can have the presence of God. See, in some real way, Jesus took our forsakenness and he bore it at the cross. See, Jesus died then forsaken by the Father, that we might be alive to Him, that we might be with Him. You might stop and say, what's it matter? What's it matter that God is present with us? Why does it change anything? If God chooses not to be with us here and now, doesn't He still accomplish His purpose by getting us to heaven? Doesn't He kind of bring about this reconciliation and everything? Why does it matter that God would be present with us? a good question. See, because of Jesus' death, God is still present with his people in the Holy Spirit. And we see that he uses this in specific ways. And his spirit does at least three different things that I just want to highlight for us this morning. As the spirit is present with his people, he illumines the scriptures. That's a big theology Christian word, right? Illumines, right? What, What do we mean by that? Scriptures make sense. When the Spirit resides in us and we crack open our Bibles, we we find that they make sense to us. The Spirit actually brings those things to light. That's what Jesus told us that the Spirit would do. John chapter 14, Jesus told us that when the Spirit would come, He would teach us all things. In, In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul describes that these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit to uh, to show us the meaning of his word, to show us what, what he wanted to teach us through the scriptures themselves. See, outside of the Spirit residing in us, these things are just kind of principles. They're, they're just kind of uh, notions that float around. They don't have any meaning to us. But as the Spirit brings them to bear on our hearts, they have real tangible presence in us. The second thing he does through the Spirit is that he accomplishes his mission in the earth. Remember in Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, where Jesus, as he's ascending, is saying, um, hey, the Spirit will come and it will give you power and you will be my witnesses to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus gives the Spirit to empower his mission. It is the Spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, not us. He would do this as the Spirit guides His people into all truth. You realize this morning that no person has come to faith in Jesus Christ outside of the Spirit's work. There's not a Christian that can say, I got here outside of the Holy Spirit. All of us are bound to the work of the Spirit in the world. The Spirit's also given not just to 
um, illumine the scriptures, to accomplish his mission. The Spirit is also given to train us in godliness. When we go to 1 Peter, Peter will tell us this, uh, that the Holy Spirit is the sanctification, uh, tells us that the Holy Spirit gives us the sanctification of the Spirit. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that uh, if we put to death the deeds of the body, it's accomplished by the Spirit's presence in us. And if you're thirsting to be more righteous, if you want to put on the character of Christ, you, you do so as you walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So we ask, why is it important that God would be with his people? It's because God is accomplishing his purpose in the world as his spirit is doing his work in us. See, I would submit this morning that many of us feel very disconnected from this reality. We live the majority of our lives in, in desperate disconnection from the life that we have in the spirit. I also think that many of us might, might think that this life in the Spirit, life with God's presence, it looks like constant victory. You ever think that? That if I was a better Christian, I would just live better? I, I would find myself more victorious in more, more ways and more expressions? I would have a better job. I would be more upwardly mobile in my position. I would uh, be a better witness to my neighbors. I would be more financially successful. If God was really present with me, those things would bear themselves out. And what I want to tune us in today is to say that the Spirit is accomplishing kingdom work in us, not the work we would desire for ourselves. It's here that the life of Joseph stands out. Even amidst his faithfulness, God submits Joseph to greater and greater suffering. Even as Joseph is living in greater and greater expressions of righteousness, he finds himself further and further from home, more and more alienated from those that he's around. It was brought to my attention a few weeks ago. There was uh, someone's post on Facebook, and forgive me, I don't even remember who it was. I don't think it's anybody here, but they had this statement. It was, uh, by his wounds we are healed. And uh, that's a scriptural statement, Isaiah 53. But it was specifically brought to bear upon this kind of uh, disease. Uh, I claim victory over disease because by his wounds we are healed. And I find myself at a loss. How could we claim what is obviously a spiritual implication there as something that would be physically healing to us. I mean, Isaiah 53 is consistently talking about sinfulness and about Jesus as substitute paying for our sinfulness. It's interpreted that way time and time again in the New Testament, places like 1 Peter chapter 2. It's by this logic that by his wounds we are healed, that, that passages like 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul speaks of his thorn in the flesh, though they don't make any sense, when Timothy has a stomach issue, as Paul writes to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, he says, take a little wine for your stomach. That doesn't make any sense. Timothy doesn't have enough faith then to be physically healed of his issues. See, the truth is, this morning, Christians get cancer. Christians lose their jobs. Christians suffer. But they do this as they're accompanied by God's presence in the Spirit, as God's accomplishing His mission in His people and in His world, illumining the Scriptures bringing forth his mission, making us look like Christ. 
See, I wonder this morning if we can look at the life of Joseph and actually find some solace there that our life doesn't look like we thought it should look like. And that might be actually a sign of faithfulness. It might be a sign of the Spirit that indwells in us and and brings us and invites us into further and further difficulties and sufferings. This morning, I want us to see that God is present with His people uniquely in the Spirit. And as Paul calls us to walk in step with the Spirit, we are uniquely allowed to do so in the resurrection of Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer and ask Him to make us people who walk in step with His Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we do. We pray to that end. We pray that You would make us a people that walk with You. Lord, strip away our unrighteousness. Give us a thirst for righteousness that we would take on your character, that we would be holy as you are holy. Or we recognize that in the life of Joseph, you brought him into further and further suffering to accomplish your purpose. Help us also to embrace suffering if it means Christ-likeness. Help us to embrace suffering if it means your mission going forth in the world. If, help us to embrace Christ-likeness or suffering if it means that we can understand your words more clearly. Help us to understand uh, your purpose and your design for us in the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.